the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The text for the sermon this morning is the gospel lesson read a moment ago from Matthew chapter 16. Here again the word of the Lord. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, that seems a bit harsh, I think. Calling Peter Satan just because he didn't want Jesus to suffer and die? What happened to love your neighbor as yourself? Isn't Peter trying to do just that? Sounds like suffering and dying would be not so great of a thing. So it seems like a noble thing for him to try to stop Jesus from suffering and dying. So why the Satan name calling? What's the problem here? So first we can recall the context. I mean, this follows immediately after the gospel reading from from last Sunday in Matthew 16, as Jesus had asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What are people saying about me? And they, they respond, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, John the Baptist, they all say good things. And then uh, Jesus looks at them and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers on behalf of the disciples and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the Christ, the Messiah, that is the promised Savior from the Old Testament, and God himself, who would be the Savior of the world. But how would Jesus be the Savior? How is it that God will save us? It's that point that Peter wasn't quite clear on yet, which is why at the end of the gospel lesson last week, Jesus says, don't go telling people about this just yet. It's because they didn't quite get it. They didn't understand in what way it was that Jesus would be the Savior and how God would save. So Jesus goes on to lay it out for them. That's right where our gospel lesson picks up. He's explaining in what way Jesus will be the Christ, the Son of God. He will go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed and be raised on the third day. But that doesn't make any sense, not to Peter or to us, because football teams don't win by losing. Armies don't win battles by having everyone die on their side. That's the clear way that things work out in this world. Jesus calls it the things of man. The most powerful win by power, by overcoming, by conquering. You don't show weakness and you avoid suffering. If Jesus is really God, he will not allow suffering. That's the thinking of this world. But Jesus, as he always does, turns things upside down. He will win, but by losing. He will bring life by dying. The power of sin, death, and the devil will be overcome, not by power, but by his death. So Peter says, no. May it never be. The Greek is showing all the emphasis 
as though it could be translated, never, ever, ever will this happen to you, Jesus, which seems again like a nice thing to say, but that is the thinking of Satan because it keeps Jesus off of the cross. Jesus not on the cross, Jesus not suffering and dying in the place of sinners, that's exactly what the devil wants. You can have Jesus as a teacher, as another lawgiver, as your buddy, a guru, or some fortune cookie, and Satan is cool with that, as long as Jesus isn't dying for sinners. For Peter, Jesus is God, and God doesn't allow suffering or weakness. That's the key here. So Peter's half right. He gets that Jesus is God, but he's missing this point as he thinks that God doesn't allow suffering or weakness. Now this hits us in a very close to home way because it's the same argument that the devil and our own sinful flesh brings to us in our times of suffering. And it uses suffering to bring us into despair. It starts with this. God won't allow suffering. So, when I suffer, it must mean that there is no God. Or, when I suffer, it must mean that God doesn't have the power to stop my suffering. And a God without power to stop suffering is no God at all. Or, in my suffering, it means that God doesn't care about me, in which case, I don't want that God. Who wants a God who doesn't care about them? It all ends in despair. If we start by demanding that God won't allow suffering, then we'll despair and doubt when suffering inevitably comes. But when you start with the cross, it transforms the way that we understand our suffering. To reject the Jesus who suffers is the way of Satan. Instead, Jesus wants to be known as Savior, not by power, but through the self-chosen weakness of the cross. His love for you is seen not in your lack of suffering, but you know that he loves you because he has suffered for you. And he has promised to be with you in the midst of suffering. Uh, a couple weeks ago in Bible study, I talked about how we could picture suffering as a room that we're trying to get out of, and I think that's a helpful image. So think about suffering as being a room that you are locked inside of, facing continuous suffering. And so you obviously want out of that room of suffering, and you see a door, and the door is labeled comfort and peace. So it seems like a natural place to go running to try to get out of the room of suffering. And so you run to the door and try all you can to get out of the room through the door of comfort and peace. Scratching at the door, knocking at it, yelling at it. But try all you can. You can't open the door to get out. It is locked from the outside. Isn't this really the human experience in our suffering? That all must face suffering at some point, 
both in ourselves and in those that we love. And as you're locked there in the room, just as you give up hope, the door starts to, you hear the fiddling of the keys on the other side. It unlocks and Jesus comes in. He enters the room and brings peace and comfort into the room of suffering. Jesus doesn't prove his love for us by taking us out of the room, but rather he shows his love for us by coming in, coming into our room. He took our sinful flesh upon himself and suffered and died in this world. He joins us in our suffering, promising to be with us always and working through even our suffering to strengthen us and one day to finally call us to himself. And that is where we find peace and even joy in this world of suffering. Suffering will always find you in this fallen world. And the comfort door will seem to be there, maybe masquerading as a bottle or self-indulgence, even suicide for some. But try as you may, you can't open the comfort door. Instead, our Lord Jesus brings comfort and peace in. He brings it into our lives. We would know his love for us, especially in our times of suffering. He comes to us in the humility and lowliness of the cross. These lowly ways that don't make sense to the world, not by power and strength and might, but by dying on the cross. And he continues to come before us, bringing us comfort and peace in that same way of weakness and lowliness through the spoken word that calls us forgiven, using water, the simplest of all things that he, puts his, he uses to put his name upon us, promising to be with us always to the end of the age. So we would know that at all times, especially in suffering, the Lord Jesus is with us. In the lowliness of bread and wine, as he delivers the cross into us, the eternal life won on the cross, put into our temporal bodies, bringing us life eternal. And that brings us peace and joy through these weak ways. And then he sets us in this world to live with that same humility and lowliness toward one another. As he said in today's gospel, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Christian life then is a life of self-denial that puts love of others before ourselves. To take up the cross is to put to death our sinful flesh that seeks self-gratification over love of others. The way of the cross is to ask forgiveness of others when wrong is done and to freely grant forgiveness when wronged. It shows weakness to forgive and it shows weakness to ask forgiveness. That's why it's so, when you tell someone, when someone comes to you and says that they're sorry, you're, you say, no problem, don't worry about it. Because when we admit that they've hurt us, we're showing that we're hurt a bull. So in the act of forgiving others, we're, we're admitting ultimately hurtability in ourselves. So forgiving others is itself 
lowliness, and weakness. And to come before another and ask for forgiveness is also weakness, setting aside our desire to have power over others and admitting our failure, our hurting of others. So we show our weakness. It's hard because it's putting others before yourself, but that is the cross that we are given. To forgive, be forgiven, to selflessly love those who are placed before us and see others as a gift to serve. That's all setting our mind on the things of God. And according to Jesus, that's where we find our life. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The life of joy and peace is found, or better yet, it is given to us by our Lord, who suffered for us, suffers with us, and sets us before others to love them in the same way that he has loved us. In the name of Jesus, amen. We stand for prayer.